Money FM 89.3. Best of drive time. Money FM 89.3. It is drive time. Elliot Danka, Timothy Go, and Chua Tian Tian in with you. It is time now for our Washington Report. Well, of course, if you're paying attention to the news over the weekend, a Chinese surveillance balloon that the U.S. president's upcoming State of the Union address is also tomorrow, tomorrow U.S., and a federal debt ceiling. Those are all in our cards today. On the line with us this afternoon is Trisha Craig, Vice President Engagement and Senior Lecturer of Social Sciences, Sociology and Political Science at Yale NUS College. Uh, good afternoon, Trisha. How have you been? Hi, I've been well. Thanks for having me back. I suppose we were going to start off by talking about this spy balloon. I mean, could you give us your general assessment on what the White House is saying about uh, how the takedown was handled? You know, I think the White House has done a pretty good job of this after a bit of a slow start. I think a lot of Congress and and some of the media was a little bit histrionic about it. But the White House, you know, told the people in the U.S. that once it was detected, they stopped its ability to collect data, meaning I think they jammed signals. They consulted with the Pentagon and they decided to take it down once it was over water to avoid any potential casualties or debris endangering people on the ground. And then in a sort of, you know, made for social media spectacle, they blew it out of the sky over Maryland. So, Tricia, why do you think it took so long or took a little bit of time for them to act on this one, though? I mean, this is clearly a foreign object, a flying foreign object (laughs) uh, getting into U.S. airspace. And once they have identified that it's not an American flight, object, shouldn't they have taken it down for security purposes right mm-hmm. away? Well, I think the idea is that in terms of security, they can actually stop it from collecting data while it's still in the sky. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, one of the things that we learned from this incident is that this is not the first balloon to be wandering over the skies. There's one right now, apparently, in uh, South America. In South America, uh, yeah. There were several that came in during the, the Trump administration. So I think that, you know, they know that these are there. So I think they were probably a little bit backfooted by the public reaction to it. Mm. Well, since you say this is not the first balloon, I mean, looking from uh, the Chinese perspective, what exactly do they stand to gain when you consider in this day and age how quickly it gets caught? The information gathered surely must be quite limited as well. Let me start out by saying, you know, when these situations happen, all of a sudden, all of us become high altitude balloon specialists. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And we're not, right? But I think what we have learned is that, A, they're not so unusual, and B, yeah, this is a centuries-old technology that you think would have been superseded by modern satellites, but apparently there are some advantages. They're Mm. cheaper to launch, Mm. they can linger over target areas longer, they can intercept some communications. So my assumption is that the Chinese did not expect there to be much in the way of diplomatic costs. They've been sending these without incident. So, of course, it's quite brazen to send things that are visible to the naked eye into a rival's airspace. But I think from the point of view of the Chinese, this may have been an unintended error, you know, rather than a deliberate provocation on the eve of a U.S. visit. So you do believe that this balloon actually drifted towards, because I understand it came in from uh, the north, from Alaska, and then Alaska and Canada. drifted yep. further down. Do you think this was intended for Canada instead of the, um, instead of the <laughs> United States, perhaps? Well, apparently meteorologists say that given the, look, these things are to some limited extent mm. terrible, but they are beholden to the weather, uh, but the right. weather patterns clearly should have taken it over the U.S. So, no, mm. I don't think it was intended for Canada. I guess at this point, you know, Sarah Palin would have been right. <laughs> Alaska 
would have been the frontier there. Anyway, speaking of Sarah Palin, let's uh, focus in on tomorrow's State of the Union address. This is going to be very important for the U.S. President Joe Biden in Mm -hmm. his last, uh, well, kind of last year in office. Yeah. Last year and a half. Yep. This is indeed a big speech for him. And it's quite it's quite a different scenario than last year. Last year's speech, you know, we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine happening almost simultaneously. The Democrats had small majorities in both houses. So, you know, this year we've got divided government. We've got a Republican Party that seems to be in a bit of disarray internally. And we have a war in Ukraine that does not seem like it's going to end anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the importance of, of these uh, State of the Union addresses leading into another presidential campaign, which is the 2024 one. What are you looking at there? How important is it? And could we get a Republican response? Yeah, there will definitely be a Republican response. Mm. So, so on the foreign policy side, I think that Biden's going to have to make the case for ongoing support of Ukraine. Okay. Uh, this is not a war that's ending anytime soon. The balloon probably will, will make an appearance. <laughs> but, you know, the State of the Union is largely a domestic speech for a domestic audience. And here, I think he has to do a little bit of toggling. On one hand, as, as you noted uh, just a few minutes ago on, on the economic report, the U.S. economy is doing really well. The last jobs report showed historically low employment, a lot of job creation, wages continue to rise, inflation, which has been a big worry, is moderating. All that's good. But for a lot of Americans, the economy doesn't feel so great. Wages aren't keeping up with inflation and top of the mind goods like eggs. You know, eggs in the Mm -hmm. U.S. are like onions in the Philippines, right? Right. They're through the roof. Housing seems out of reach for many. So on one hand, Biden has to take credit for a robust economy, but while also showing he's in touch with how Americans are feeling. I think some other issues that we'll probably see are gun violence in the U.S., which is a perennial issue. At the start of the year, we had some heartbreaking mass shootings, uh, particularly uh, in the Asian-American community, also uh, police violence. So I think he needs to tackle these issues like banning assault weapons, police reform, support for law and order. And these are issues that divide the U.S., uh, particularly on party lines. And he probably will have to make a pitch for the importance of raising the debt ceiling. Tricia, will he be able to use this opportunity to make a case for a re-election in 2024, or is it too early? No, this is absolutely going to be about the re-election. I think he will point to some of the achievements, some of the infrastructure achievements, the uh, the strong economy, that sort of thing. But I think really importantly, one of the things, in a, in a way, he's auditioning and we can't get away from the issue that he is he is old. He's 80 years old. Yeah. One of the things I think people are going to be looking at, it, does he is he a commanding presence? Does mm-hmm. he have the stamina for another four years? The Republican response to the State of the Union, I think quite strategically, features Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the mm-hmm. former White House press secretary. She was elected recently as governor of Arizona. She's the youngest governor in America, and mm-hmm. she's a woman. So I think that, you know, that sort of... Symbolism there is not lost on, you know, a contrast to Biden. Yeah. Just a final point, uh, Tricia, and it's on the back of what you mentioned earlier on uh, the opportunity to talk about the debt ceiling. Just want to put in context, right? I mean, what does that fight mean for the real economy? A lot of news reports talking about the potential for a U.S. recession, fears uh, of a U.S. recession. What are your thoughts on this matter? Well, I think the I think the U.S. has done and the Federal Reserve have done a really remarkable job in guiding us towards a soft landing. That there are there are fewer yes there are still fears of a recession, but mm-hmm. I think they are somewhat lower than they have been in the past. 
the problem with the debt ceiling and and not allowing it to be to be raised is that you get the potential for freezing federal benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't get paid, their their social security, that kind of thing. A recession would be more likely under circumstances where households don't have as much cash. There are higher borrowing costs associated with it, so people's mortgages and things like that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we know from the last time that this happened in 2011 is that there's extreme stock market volatility, all of which tends to unnerve investors. All right. We've been speaking with Trisha Craig, who is Vice President, Engagement and Senior Lecturer of Social Sciences, Sociology and Political Science at Yale and U.S. College. Trisha, thank you so much for your time today. Have uh, a great week ahead. Thanks so much. You too. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.